0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at tiaa.org/promises off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. The economy is shifting dramatically, it's why this show exists. Technology, automation, rising inequality, these things are restructuring companies and they're reconstituting our very notion of jobs. And for a lot of people, that's really painful. We're trying to figure out what our jobs look like exactly in a decade and what we need to learn to be ready for them. It's an equation that feels like it's changing all the time. But in the midst of this, there are some people who seem to have just figured it out. I'm not talking about startup millionaires here or Instagram influencers. I mean, people who've turned their own skills into careers that allow them to cover their bills and to live well, people who are making it.
1: I do believe that we have entered an economy where for people who have curiosity, who have passion or have a passion to develop a passion, have a bit of ambition, a bit of hunger, a bit of um, willingness, There's so many ways to thrive and to thrive in ways that um, their parents never could have and their grandparents never could have.
0: That's Adam Davidson, and you might recognize his voice. He's a business journalist whose credits include founding Planet Money, the wildly popular economics show for NPR. He's also a staff writer for The New Yorker. And throughout his career, he's covered a lot of crises from the aftermath of the earthquake in Haiti to the financial crisis back in 2008. And along the way, he's met a number of these people, the ones who figured out something about how this new economy works. He's collected these stories and put them in a book called The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century. This episode, Adam explains how we got here. And he shares what he's learned about how to make a career, any career, work in the future. Here's Adam. So Adam, as you were going through this journey of reporting on the economy. Uh, you learned a lot about how people make it, um, how people forge successful careers, how that's changing. And of course, you experienced a lot of what I experience when I'm talking to job seekers, which is the anxiety of the unease that comes with the fact that there's a lot of change. Technology is changing things. Structurally, something is different than the economy that our parents came into. Um, and through all of that anxiety and unease, you landed on a number of people who seem to be just elegantly figuring something out and succeeding. And that, that's what your book's about, right?
1: That is what my book's about. I mean, if, if you look at, you know, I was at NPR for many years, then I was at The New York Times Magazine, then I, now I'm a writer for The New Yorker. And 90-something percent of what I wrote is grim, dark stuff i spent i covered the financial crisis and you know for those of us covering it on the front lines i think we understand we truly came to the brink i mean the collapse of our civilization i mean it it, it, there was a few weeks there in september october 2008 where it was not unreasonable to imagine and, and, you know, very calm, very boring economics professors who've never said anything sensational in their lives were talking seriously about the fundamental collapse of thousands of years of civilization. That was a real on-the-table thing. And I covered the financial crisis. Then I spent a lot of time in Haiti covering the aftermath of the earthquake um, and and just the embedded decades of, of corruption and misrule. I— um, for a while, for NPR, I was covering pretty much every crisis that came up: Hurricane Katrina and um, and uh, the the tsunami in Indonesia and 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 then much of what Planet Money eventually focused on, and much of my work at the New York Times and the New Yorker focused on, was rising inequality, the fact that the U.S. seemed to have had a machinery for making most groups better off over the course of their life span and that that had broken. And so I much of my life was in very grim areas and real. I mean, those are all very real issues. Along the way, I kept finding these people. At first, just totally accidentally. I'd just kind of be interviewing someone. and They say, hey, do you know this person? You should meet this person. They've kind of figured it out. And eventually, it became a project. I was collecting these people that I eventually – came to call the Passion Economy folks, who I came to realize had intuited on their own that the very forces that were causing so much distress, global trade, automation, outsourcing, also offered incredible opportunity for certain kinds of people, and that Yes, there is a dark and pessimistic story, and and certainly I don't want to come across as, hey, everything's great, everyone's going to be great. I don't think that's true. But I do believe that we have entered an economy where for people who have curiosity, who have passion or have a passion to develop a passion, have a bit of ambition, a bit of hunger, a bit of um, willingness, there's so many ways to thrive and to thrive in ways that um, their parents never could have and their grandparents never could have. I, I I, don't think it's easy. I don't think it's available to everybody. I think you need a certain level of education, a certain level of sort of probably just intelligence and kind of ambition and stick But I think it's available to a lot more people than realize it's available to them. And, and that was the idea of the book, to tell people, hey, it's it, it's actually – there's something wonderful happening amidst the chaos.
0: Well, and give me an example of just one of the people who has landed a successful life from your book.
1: Sure. So th- th- there's a guy named Lance Cheney who um, – he, he wanted to be an artist. His dad runs – ran Braun Brush, the company that his great-grandfather, I believe, founded in the 1800s. And it was – a really boring commodity brush maker. Um, they particularly focused on brushes for the food industry, so pizza oven brushes, like uh, which is a special kind of. It has to be really um, sharp and, and metallic to wipe down a pizza oven, but you don't want a, the bristles to fall off because you don't want these metal bristles to be in people's pizza. So it's like a technical thing that's kind of boring. And then China came along, like and just started selling all their brushes for much cheaper than they could um, make them. And like so many American manufacturers, they were facing utter devastation. And what Lance Cheney did was he was like, all right, as soon as China's making a brush, we're done. We're not making that brush anymore, which in a way is counterintuitive because almost by definition, the brushes China Chinese companies would make were exactly their best sellers. But Lance essentially turned his company from a producer of commodity brushes, of huge volumes of, of brushes, to a brush sol- solutions company. So he
0: – Wait, just like – can we just have a moment around? That's funny sounding. It is like a, a b- funny <laughs> – brush, brush solutions which, company. Yes.
1: And when I first heard about it, it sounded ridiculous. And um, in fact, the way I learned about it is I did a profile of a different brush manufacturer in the Bronx who, was going, who went out of business because of the Chinese competition. And I asked the guy, has anyone figured this out? And he said, oh, Lance Cheney has figured it out. And so I had to talk to Lance Cheney. So what Lance does is he just works intensely with companies and find solutions for problems that involve brushes. So he worked with a nuclear power um, inspection company. They go to nuclear power plants and inspect them. And the standard brush they used um, would shed a few little staples every now and then. But eventually, these nuclear power plants had thousands and thousands of staples kind of sloshing around in the water, at the, the coolant water, at, at the nuclear power plant, a huge danger. So Lance came up with a brush that the in safety inspectors could use that would never, it had no staples, so no staples could fall off. Similarly, he worked with, um, I think it was Frito-Lay that had a big machine that made potato chips, and or corn chips, I can't remember, um, But it had like this corner of the machine where the chips would kind of get congregate and crush each other. And he came up with a very simple brush that pushed them gently out of the way and without ever having a risk of a bristle falling off. Because if you buy some Frito-Lay and you suddenly eat a bristle, turns out when you make brushes, if you can make brushes where the bristles don't fall off, you've got it made. He made a special brush for NASA. And there's two rovers on Mars that have his brushes because when they go to a rock – to drill into the rock to see what it's made of, they need to brush the surface first. And he had to make a very special brush that was as light as possible, but still could withstand the wild fluctuations and heat and cold and um, of of the Martian at. Uh, of, of, well, I was going to say Martian atmosphere. I don't think it has an atmosphere, but of Mars. <laughs> so, and when you talk to Lance, I mean, he has this deep. A brush is a simple thing. There's some kind of stick, there's some kind of bristle, and there's some kind of glue or other adhesive to keep them together. But he could talk to you, and you would be interested for hours. Maybe you'd be interested for minutes, but but he could talk to you for hours about, I mean, he's explained to me what why beaver hair is better for chocolatiers who need to coat Um, candies and chocolate than other animal hairs, and when you want a horse hair brush, and when you want uh, the different kinds of nylon brushes, etc. So he has this deep expertise, but really what fires him up is figuring this stuff out all the time and and coming up with unique solutions. And I guess that is something everyone in the book has. There's this Amish farm supply, farm Amish manufacturer that makes horse-drawn farm equipment, and they're figuring out unique solutions for that market. And that's where I think each of us has some combination of interests and knowledge, or at least interests that we could use to then acquire the knowledge, where we're able to solve some weird problem that no one else is even thinking about. And there's some group of people who want it.
0: That sort of wonderfully illustrates one of the handful of rules that you lay out in this book for how you make a career like this work. And that is like don't do anything that's a commodity. So, give us some other big ideas around like how you make a career like this work.
1: So, don't do a commodity, and don't do things other people do. Feels really important. I mean, that that, um, and and you know, part of the argument I make is that we, the the twentieth century economy was kind of a blip in human history, but uh, where it was built around large companies that were focused on making lots and lots of the same stuff, just faster and cheaper. And that created all sorts of ramifications in our educational system, our jobs, our healthcare system, our the way we save for retirement. It sort of made us think about a job is a thing that kind of exists out there and you get a job and then you just do the thing you're told. And the more kind of you fit, you're a square peg in a square hole the better off you are. And, and so my argument is we're now in a new economy. And so the mo- closer you are to that 20th century economy, the worse off. So don't be a commodity is a big one. Another major one is price. Really think about price. And price can be, I make this object, I make a brush, and how much do I charge for it? It could be, and I do think these rules largely apply to people who work at a big company, what is your salary? What um, if you provide a service? How do you charge for your service? I go (laughs) to enormous length in here talking about why creative professionals and service providers like accountants and lawyers shouldn't charge by the hour. That's a terrible way. You should charge. Your price should be rooted in the value your consumer gets from what you do. Standard pricing, the most typical pricing, is what cost plus. You make a brush. It costs you 5 bucks of raw material. It costs, you know, it takes a dollar worth of time. So the cost all in is six dollars plus shipping and stuff. Let's call it ten bucks. So I'm going to pay, I'm going to charge twenty bucks. But if you're making a tool that stops a nuclear power plant from having a risk of explosion, the value of that is not twenty dollars. The value of that is thousands of dollars. And so understanding how to price based on value rather than price based on cost, to me, is one of the most important. And it, it gets profound, but it, it seems at first like kind of a boring afterthought.
0: We're taking a quick pause here. Coming up after the break, Adam offers his advice for people entering the workforce for the first time. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA.
1: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
0: And we're back with Adam Davidson. As I was thinking about the various people that you profiled, ultimately, there didn't seem to be a lot in common between them around the things that they had discovered, each on their own. And I came away thinking, yes, all the rules that you lay out apply to them, but I came away thinking, holy heck, this is hard. Like this is, you know, the thing about the 20th century is that you graduated and you got a job at IBM and you followed the big book of rules you got at the beginning of that job and then you knew what linear success looked like. And this is the opposite of that.
1: Yeah. Although yes, that is true. Part of that is that I do think we're at the dawn of a new economy. So I, I think of, you know, my family was a, were a bunch of farmers in the Plymouth, Massachusetts area until the late eighteen hundreds, and then it just became didn't was no longer a way to make a living. So like so many American families, they moved to Central Massachusetts, which now is barely any distance at all, but at the time was a massive shift and became factory workers. And to them, this felt like death. This felt terrifying. They they went from a world where all the family lived very close together, where the work you were doing was work that your great-great-great-grandparents had done. It was tied into your church and your values. And and then suddenly young women are living on their own and going to dance halls and and people siblings are living far apart and don't know each other people are it was chaos it was confusing it was terrifying and factories did take terrible advantage of people obviously and working conditions could be awful and it was it was confusing it was terrifying it, there was a period of real dislocation and then it took a while so you know in In the late 1800s, getting a high school degree was a rare thing. Something like 10 percent of Americans had a high school degree. So it wasn't like we had to build the public school system. We had to eliminate child labor laws. It wasn't until 1938 that America eliminated child labor laws across the nation, which to me seems very late. Um, you know the, the the union battles the 5 day work week the 8 hour workday um the the very idea of a career that's an modern invention you know arguably invented by the dupont corporation in the 1910s and the 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 idea that college is not just this obscure thing for ministers it's a general purpose thing for anyone who wants to be successful that's all those are all things that came about in the early 20th century so I think we're in a period like that. That's my claim, that we're, we've are we entered a new economy and we don't yet have the structures, the systems in place to guide us well, um, but that hopefully those will come in time. Uh, it's not a guarantee. A lot of people have to work really hard to build the structures the last time and they don't always happen right. Um, but that... There were people in 1890 and 1900 and 1905 who saw what was coming, who intuited what was coming, and who were able to build stability at a time when so many people saw only chaos. And that's what I see as these people. They're not – none of these people are theoreticians. These aren't like academics who came up with a total theory of the world. They solved their own problem. I'm the one who came along and said, oh, you and you and you are doing something similar. And let me try – and so – at my most pretentious, you know, if I my my most uh, I, I feel embarrassed saying something like this. But, you know, the one purpose of this book is it's one small step towards developing a language, a way of thinking about these new rules, this new system, so that more people can understand how to get ahead.
0: So, Adam, I, I want you to consider two people and think about the guidance that your book might offer them. The first person Somebody just coming into the workforce the first time. Maybe they have a college degree. Maybe they're contemplating whether to get it. Um, What advice do you have?
1: So I think my biggest advice is that the precious resource is a understanding you, yourself, understanding what things drive you enough that you could devote – hours a week for years and years and years to doing. So, you know, I was lucky enough to find that in journalism where I was willing to just, it it seemed perfectly fine to me that, oh, there's skills and abilities that'll take me decades to learn. And I'm going to, I'm willing to put the time in. And I, because I, I think this idea of a passion of some internal driving force is a necessary precondition. But for most people, it's not, you don't, it's not obvious right away, so I think it, in a weird way, it's kind of a comb- that recognizing that that's the core purpose. More than getting a master's degree or a PhD, more than achieving a particular career path, that the if you want a, this life, if you want the life I'm describing, getting that is gonna is work and is like whatever else you're doing to make a living, whatever job you have, just paying attention to what turns you on, what do you hate, what do you what do you seem a little bit better than others at what do you seem way worse than others at and seeing that as like that that's a multi-year goal some of the people in this book didn't find their passion until well into their 30s or 40s which
0: which sets us up for the second person i want you to think about a second somebody who's been at a job that they're meh about for maybe a decade and a half and maybe maybe they were laid off maybe they're choosing to do something else what what advice do you have for them
1: so it the hardest conversations I have is someone with acute financial need and who wants the passion economy because I, I don't want to give the wrong impression that it's – there are people where it somehow all comes together all at once and, and it really in a very short period of time happens. Um, but but there are other people where you, it takes a while to figure it out for yourself. It takes a while to refine your story and then it takes a while to um, – you know, communicate that story. Find the right audience, and to me, the the single biggest barrier to stepping into the passion economy really is, um, something in the insecurity fear area <laughs> that, um, you know, I, that seems to be an independent force of your actual financial condition. Because I notice some people genuinely do have financial fears, and but a lot of people who come to me. They're okay financially. They could take a year to try something, but they're just terrified. And th- that is the part that um, that I struggle with personally. I-, I think the kind of if we can say the I was gonna say the coward's way. By the way, I've been a coward. I've worked for big <laughs> entities. I just went out on my own like six months ago. So so I-, I should talk. I mean, I'm almost 50 and I've spent most of my career working at big institutions where I got a steady paycheck. Um, But what I did do is I found institutions that supported the passion I had and and were places where I could develop that passion. So I do think that it is unacceptable now or it's just incredibly unwise to keep a job where you feel that your passion is being stifled rather than a place where you can develop that passion. I would also say that people with jobs in big corporations often misunderstand or, or undervalue how much entrepreneurship and autonomy they could have. I've done that at Planet Money at NPR. NPR is a very structured, rigorous, frankly, bureaucratic organization. And I was like, I want to do this other thing that no one else wants me to do. And I just fought for it. And I eventually built allies and senior leadership. And eventually, I had to prove it out. It took a long time, but I made it happen. And I have employees now, and I like it when they take that initiative. If you have a company that won't allow that, It makes sense to put yourself in a different context. Um, But yeah, I I think the group of people I worry about, if I can just say, the group of people where I talk to and I'm like, oh, I got nothing for you, are people who don't have any particular passion or curiosity and don't particularly want one. You know, I've met people who they want a job they go to, they want a boss to tell them what to do. And... Those folks, I think, are going to have a tough time, I think, an increasingly tough time. And I don't – I honestly don't know what to say to them. Someone who's scared but hopeful, someone who has a spark of wanting something different but a whole lot of fear and, and, and um, uncertainty – that's something you can. There's something there that that can build into a passion economy life.
0: Well, thank you, Adam. It was great to talk to you.
1: Yeah, this was really great to talk to you. Thank you so much.
0: Again, that was Adam Davidson, a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can check out his new book, The Passion Economy: The New Rules for Thriving in the Twenty First Century. Thanks for all the notes you sent over the holidays, especially the great stories about getting away. It was hard to choose just a few to share on our holiday episode, and we'll probably do another episode over the summer, so keep them coming. And to all of our listeners impacted by the fires in Australia, our hearts are with you. Listener Kim Ruth sent me some great suggestions for how to support local efforts there, and I've already shared them, so you can find them and tell us about your own experiences on my LinkedIn profile. If you've enjoyed listening, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Wes Wingo and Laura Sim. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini and Victoria Taylor cheer us on from the sidelines. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And you also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. Thanks for listening. Adam, I really did listen to like Every Planet That's Money. Great. Yeah. It was because you were going to help everybody else find a way in to something that like was my was my vegetables in any other format that I got it.
1: That's Money. great. Yeah. We had the rule at Planet Money. I had I had had an editor who just always gave me assignments and I just didn't I remember I would do a story and I'm like I didn't care about it. No one I interviewed cared about it. No one who heard it cared about it. And so I had this strict rule at Planet Money. Everyone has to actually want to do the story they're doing. Like no one. But then there were times like the European crisis where I'd say to the team, like, all right, no one has to do a story they don't care about. But someone better start caring about this because we need. So find a way in. Someone better find a way in.